Hi everyone, this is Darius Sulam from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today, we are joined by Dr. Andrea Benetto, Associate Professor of Surgery at Indiana University. Andrea is an expert in the field of multi-organ and multi-systemic complications of cancer and its treatments. Cachexia, a debilitating syndrome that is associated with cancer, is one of Andrea's research interests, and he is here with us to answer questions about his latest findings. Let's jump in. So the first question I have for you is in your presentation, you showed that cancer and chemotherapy alter mitochondrial morphology. Have you checked if this is also the result of changes in mitochondrial homeostasis, i.e. the balance between fusion and fission? And if so, are there any available tools to prevent the loss of mitochondria and skeletal muscle? And would these be able to prevent the loss of muscle mass and strength? Yeah, so this is actually a, a good question. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to present those data. Some of those data actually have been pre uh, published previously. We indeed have reported that cancer and chemotherapy affect the mitochondrial pool. And the way that this happen, uh, happens is by impairing mitochondrial fusion, at least this is what our data uh, support. So we have tested different strategies to prevent these and for example, in collaboration with uh, Fabio Penna, we have published evidence that using uh, mitochondrial targeting agents such as the SS31, but also MitoQ, which is something that we are testing in our lab, can preserve the mitochondrial pool and also improve muscle mass and muscle function. We have tested other strategies in the lab by directly trying to overexpress mitochondrial fusion proteins such as OPA1, which is something that has been investigated in the, in the field elsewhere. And uh, indeed, the overexpression of OPA1 is able to partially counteract the cancer-associated effects on uh, muscle mass. We have also used other strategies. For example, we have treated PGC or alpha transgenic animals. These are without with chemotherapeutics. These are animals that overexpress PGC1-alpha exclusively in the skeletal muscle. And the overexpression of these protein, which is uh, critical for mitochondrial biogenesis, has been shown to benefit muscle mass and uh, muscle function. So definitely, definitely, this is uh, something that we and others in the field are looking at. And, and, and we believe that targeting mitochondria could be the way to go to try to preserve muscle mass and function in, uh, in cachexia patients. Great, thank you so much for that. Another question here, how early does the cachexia event start during cancer development? This is a really good question. So in the field, normally we look at cachexia at when it's already advanced. However, there is an increasing awareness suggesting that cachexia might be something that occurs pretty early in the cancer progression. And this is something that we have been looking looking at in, uh, in our animal models. Quite recently, we have some preliminary data suggesting that some of the phenotypes and uh, the hallmarks that characterize cachexia actually occur very rapidly. For example, when we talk about chemotherapy-induced cachexia, we actually have evidence that the effects on muscle mass and muscle size are very, very rapid. We treated animals with chemotherapeutics and we can already see some effects after 24 hours. And similar things happen with 
uh, with cancer, uh, although the effects are not as rapid. So definitely, if we are planning to treat cachexia in animal models, we should try to either prevent the effects of cancer on muscle mass or try to counteract cachexia in very early stages. Great. Bone, muscle, and adipocytes come from the same, I'm guessing they're referring to stem cell origin. Do adipocytes have to be added to this scenario in any way? So they should, absolutely. Unfortunately, we cannot look at all tissues at the same time. So our approach of looking at more than one tissue is actually innovative, we believe. We are looking at muscle, liver, and bone, but definitely we should have to take a look at the fat as well at the same time. Teresa Zimmers have published recently evidence of a crosstalk between tumor, muscle, and fat. And we know that fat uh, is actually severely impacted. And very often we observe loss of fat even earlier, even before we start seeing effects on skeletal muscle mass. So to answer the question, absolutely, we have to keep the fat into consideration and we, we have to target uh, pathways that are responsible for the loss of adipose tissue, we believe. Excellent. Thank you for that. Did you assess pancreatic islet beta cell mass in mice treated with excess Renkel or treated with the Renkel blocker? Unfortunately, we did not, no. Okay, another question here. Thank you for the great talk. This person asks or says, uh, I'm interested in the types of assays that you use to characterize cachexia. Do you ever look at the metabolic function of the muscle in vitro, glucose uptake, uh, etc.? Yes. So uh, we actually do look at the metabolic function of the muscle, both in vitro and in vivo. We, we, we actually have published a few works recently suggesting that the energetic metabolism is severely impacted. And we have used metabolomics approach, in particular NMR and mass spectrometry approach, to look at how the metabolism is in, impaired in, uh, in animals with, uh, with cancer by looking at defects on muscle, plasma, as well as liver. Because we, we believe that looking at multiple organs is the way to go when we uh, want to assess the effects on cachexia on the, on the overall metabolism. So yeah, we do these. We have other assays. The simple SDH staining, for example, can give you an idea of uh, whether there's an impact on the uh, mitochondrial activity and energy metabolism in skeletal muscle. It provides an indication of whether there is a switch from an oxidative to a more glycolytic metabolism in, in skeletal muscle. But then we, we have other assays in the, in the lab that we can take advantage of. Great. There's a number of questions relating to Rankle here, so I'll jump to another one. Wonderful presentation. Is there evidence for Rankle upregulation upon chemotherapy? So this is a really nice question, and, it, and it's something that we have wondered ourselves many times. So we don't normally see a regulated rankle with chemotherapy, at least at the time points that we have investigated. If we simply look at rankle, circulating rankle levels in animals exposed to chemotherapy at time of sacrifice, so when the cachexia is uh, uh, already evident, 
Well, in that case, we don't see rankle, but that doesn't mean that rankle is maybe not upregulated at earlier time points. It is simply something that we haven't looked at. But just to give you another another hint on on whether rankle is a tumor rankle upregulation is a tumor specific, uh, we also don't see upregulated circulating rankle in uh, animals exposed to ovarian ovarian colorectal cancer, sorry. So in our hands, it appears that wrinkle is uh, upregulated primarily in ovarian cancer, which is in line with uh, evidence from the literature suggesting that it plays a role in uh, cancer progression. So yeah, to answer your questions, we don't see it in, uh, in association with chemotherapy, but also we don't see it in association with other tumors. Amazing, thank you. So in bone cells, rankle signals via PI3K AKT signaling. This is a well-known anabolic signaling pathway in skeletal muscle, yet rankle appears to cause muscle atrophy. Would you be able to speculate what, what are the bases for this contradiction? We actually haven't looked at the signaling in, a, in bone, but we have looked at the signaling downstream of rankle binding to its receptor in skeletal muscle. And we actually have found activation of the TRAP6 dependent signaling, so which is something that has also been reported, to my knowledge, in, in bone and uh, in the activation of osteoclasts. So we haven't looked at the PIT kinase signaling in uh, in that case, but we we have some, we have performed actually some some Western blotting in CRC12 cells exposed to recombinant rankle. And if I remember correctly, we have seen, besides the activation of TRAV6, we also saw a reduction in the phosphorylation of AKT, which is in line with the effects on uh, skeletal muscle fibers. Normally, a reduction in the phosphorylation of AKT suggests, are suggestive of uh, skeletal muscle atrophy. So this is something that we were hoping to see. Great. Another rankle question here. Uh, does rankle have direct effects on, on muscle receptors, etc.? So I, I, I believe uh, they mean whether rankle affects the expression of the rank receptor. So we uh, have looked at that, and I don't think that there is any change on the expression of rank. However, something that I haven't mentioned during the presentation, we have evidence that rankle can also signal through another receptor called LGR4. LGR4 is actually being reported in uh, osteoclasts, I believe. And we have found that LGR4 is also expressed on the surface of muscle fibers. And whenever we block LGR4, we can partially blunt the uh, rankle-dependent rank signaling. So we believe that this could be another way that rankle signals in skeletal muscle and drives skeletal muscle at. Great, thank you. What is the relevance of in silico studies for understanding cancer-associated cachexia? Unfortunately, so in silico studies would be the dream of all of us cachexia investigators because I believe that we, we use a lot of animals for our experiments, which is not the funniest thing. Unfortunately, uh, in silico models are, are not able to recapitulate completely what happens in a host with cancer. We have to use animal models, especially because cachexia is a multi-organ and multi-systemic conditions. So if we want to investigate effects on multiple organs at the same time, unfortunately, I believe that the animal models are the way to go. Awesome. We're going to keep the ball rolling here. We have lots of questions coming in. Your data suggests that ovarian cancers are the primary source of rankle. Have you checked if bone-derived rankle also plays a role in driving skeletal muscle wasting in your animal model? Yes, excellent question. 
This is actually something that we are actively investigating right now. It's a new project that we started at Fabrizio Pina, a research faculty in my lab, is uh, driving. So it is absolutely true. The tumor is the main source of rancor, but also the bone can produce some rancor. And if you remember, when we treated the uh, ES2 hosts with zoledronic acid, we only saw a partial rescue of rancor levels. So that suggests that both the bone and the tumor can produce rancor. And we have evidence that actually the bone is a major source of rancor, but also other pro-inflammatory cytokines. We have exposed bone cultures to tumor cell lines, and we have saw increases in uh, rancor, as well as, uh, as I said, other mediators that are normally associated with uh, muscle wasting. So this is something that we are actively working on, and, uh, and we believe that we, we will soon come up with, uh, with evidence in support of, uh, of the idea that osteoclast, uh, that, uh, bone, uh, cell types in bone in general are uh, an important source of, uh, prochaetic factors. Perfect. Here's another for you. In some of the force frequency curves, higher frequencies cause lower torque production than the moderate frequencies. Why do you think this is happening? This is a nice question. I don't know how to answer that. Actually, I will go back and, uh, and look at these. I, I haven't noticed this, absolutely. I don't know if someone like Matt or have noticed that and can answer the question better. We'll, uh, we'll leave that one to the side here for now. Yeah, I'd be happy to answer later. We will move to another one. Does the CRC metastasize to bone? Are they osteogenic or osteolytic? Yes. So good question. This is something that we, we have been working on for some time. So we, as I said, we have multiple colorectal cancer models in the lab. We have seen that in particular when the, the colorectal cancer metastasizes to the liver, which is the primary site of metastasization in advanced colorectal cancer, then that's the case when we see also bone loss. If you remember from the data that I presented, C26 subcutaneous model normally does not associate with loss of bone. However, when the tumor is implanted intrasplenically in order to metastasize to the liver and mimic advanced colorectal cancer, that's the case when we see also bone, severe uh, bone loss. And we believe that that's associated with the release of liver-specific factors that could play a role in the regulation of bone, bone mass as well. So it's something that we are actively investigating right now, but uh, we believe that we will lead to the identification of uh, novel factors that are responsible in the regulation of the muscle and bone crosstalk in, in colorectal cancer. Great. Here's an interesting question. Exercise has been proposed as a therapy for muscle wasting due to cancer cachexia. Are adverse effects less in physically active patients before starting therapy? Excellent question. So exercise absolutely has been used in uh, cancer patients as well as in animal models to sort of prevent toxicity of cancer as well as toxicity associated with anti-cancer treatments. To further investigate whether exercise, preventive exercise, could be uh, useful to prevent chemotherapy-associated toxicities, we are actually establishing here at IU in, uh, in our cancer center a room right, right next to the infusion center to allow patients to perform moderate exercise right before their infusions. 
we believe that these could be strategy to minimize the effects of uh, chemotherapeutics. I know that several groups in the field of cachexia have used exercise, different protocols of exercise to minimize the effects of cancer, prevent the loss of muscle mass, and improve muscle function in, uh, in tumor hosts. And I know that, for example, Fabio Penna in, uh, in Torino has reported some data suggesting that exercise is beneficial in uh, animals with, uh, with cancer or treated with chemotherapeutics. So definitely, we, we need to look at preventive exercise could have a beneficial impact also in these, uh, in these settings. Great. How does the quantity of bone loss in the Rankle-expressing C26 model compare with the other established cachexia models? Is, is the lack of, skeletal, of a skeletal phenotype in normal C26 model due exclusively to low Rankle expression, or are there other reasons why this model exhibits no bone phenotype? So this is something that we have wondered many times, and uh, I cannot exclude that wrinkle might play a role in bone loss in, uh, in, in metastatic colorectal cancer, for example. But what we see is that absolutely the C26 cells do not produce wrinkle, especially when we compare them to the ES2 ovarian cancer cell lines. And at the same time, when we generate C26 overexpressing wrinkle, then that's when we see bone loss and exacerbated uh, effects on skeletal muscle. So suggesting that wrinkle could be the, uh, the driving force in this case. Uh, but again, I, I, I cannot exclude that wrinkle at some point, maybe in early stages, could play a role in uh, colorectal cancer-associated effects on, uh, on, on bone as well. Amazing. Another question here. Does wrinkle have an, a role in cardiac function in your model of cachexia? So... Excellent question. So we, we have looked at cardiac function in uh, many models of cancer, and we normally see impaired cardiac function with uh, different colorectal cancer models, and I believe also with the ovarian cancer. I don't think we have looked at the effects of cardiac function with the wrinkle expressing C26. I don't think that wrinkle plays a big role in this case. We normally see milder effects on cardiac muscle compared to skeletal muscle. So that probably doesn't fully answer your question, but I kind of provide more evidence that wrinkle plays any role in, in our models, in, at least for cardiac function. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers, just like you, answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.